Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One thing I will say about Secret Garden is I cannot tell you how many people over the years have told me what the original Broadway cast recording meant to them and how it got them through, you know, coming out or somebody in their life, you know, dying or just their teenage years. I mean, so many people. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical The Secret Garden, which was a listener request from Bridget and others. Thank you all for writing in. Here to chat about it. You guys, I don't even know what to say. They're original cast members of the Broadway production. You may know them as Mary Lennox and Dickon, or you may know them as Tony Winner, Daisy Egan, and Hedvig himself, John Cameron Mitchell. Everyone, please welcome two beautiful pieces of our musical theater history, Daisy and John. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. So grateful you're here. I also want to put this out in the universe. Um, As I was thought about talking to you both, I suddenly had this vision of you two hosting an HGTV type show together where you like explore gardening in metropolitan areas where Ooh. you're like visiting Monstera plants in a New York City or gardens. something like that. A patio it. garden. Exactly. Yeah. It's like Wick with Daisy and John. Anyway, I'm not asking it's, for any type of royalties. Itself. It really does. <laughs> All right. I actually am starting a permaculture garden in my backyard, Ooh. so... I, it's, a it's a thing. It's a thing. Very excited. The kids, the kids love the green, they which do. makes the Secret Garden a very timely thing to talk about um, for many reasons. And I promise I'm not going to try because I know, John Cameron, you're, you're pretty punk rock. So I'll try not to get too sentimental on this podcast, but uh, just know that I'm, I tend to cry on mic. And this show is so emotional <laughs> for me. I want to jump right in, though, and talk about your relationships to it what was happening in your lives when it came into your lives and daisy let's start with you because i was how old were you when all of this went down uh i was 10 when we did the 
reading, the first okay. reading in the summer of whatever that was. And then I turned 11 during the the official workshop. So I was I was I had been in Les Miserables and I had left because I was I'd been in the show for 14 months and I was, you know, already jaded. And I was just <laughs> ready for something else. Or no, I guess I left because we were supposed to do Secret Garden in Virginia. That was supposed to be the out of out of town oh, okay. tryout. So I did put in my notice at Les Mis for that. Uh, and then that fell through. But I, you know, I just thought it's okay. I'm gonna go off to summer camp and do whatever, go swimming in the lake and Yeah. And then they did this reading, uh, and then the workshop, and it all happened very quickly, especially I mean now knowing how long it takes for things to happen, it really did happen very fast. We were open by, you know, April of, of the following year on Broadway. Wow, that's impressive. I didn't I don't think I realized it was such a quick process. Yeah. I, I was trying to put myself in your shoes though, because like if I look back to being ten or eleven, I have general memories. And if I sit down and really do the math of like what grade I was in, I'm sure there are some yeah. core memories, but like my recollection is unreliable at best. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So is that like the same way you feel about it, even though you like won a Tony Award? At that time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm lucky that a lot of it is on tape, you know, oh, so I can enough. go back. I mean, I guess that's like the kids today, right? Their whole lives are being documented. But point. <clears throat> I think if a lot of it hadn't been televised, <laughs> I wouldn't remember. And my son is nine and a half and... You know, I look at him and I think at his age, I was already going off to work every night. Um, and I, wow. ca I can't imagine that. I can't imagine sending him <laughs> to work. <laughs> and, you know, recently I was asked to write some memories about our dear, beloved Rebecca Luker. And, you know, I don't have that many. Um, right. I have some really strong ones about Johnny because I was in love with him. And John was Join the first. The club. <laughs> John was the first man that I, you know, had a had a real crush on. Who I found out was gay, and I was just, I, you know, I was, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, but you know, we were gonna go see the Violent Femmes, and then we realized I was too young. I couldn't get into the club, and yeah, I was, I was a big fan of Johnny. And by the time you were starring in a, a Broadway show, had things like shifted enough from the Andrea McArdle years that it was a little healthier for you? Uh, I think so. You know, I I think, and my mom was really um, a big advocate for children in the business. And she was, she'd been researching the, um, oh, nuts. What is it? Coogan, the Coogan law? Oh, Not I Coogan. don't know. It's it's where parents can't steal uh, their kids' money. Oh, that uh, which had which had which had been a recent you know thing, and she was very much about kids and their and their rights. Although, again, looking back, you know, people people say like, oh, I saw an interview you did on Regis and Kathy Lee, and oh, you were so cool and calm and collected, and I'm like, no, I was actually exhausted. <laughs> That's what that was. That's I what was. It was exhausted yeah. um they did not make it easy on you with this no. show like going back on and looking at it it's an incredibly complex character and i and the the actual content was was incredibly challenging yeah i was very familiar with the book i it had been my favorite book and i had read it many many times and i had 
I had acted out the story in my bedroom alone for years. Um, so I was very familiar with it. And I had already played, you know, Tiny Tim, a little dying street urchin. And I had already played Little Cosette, a little dying street urchin. So I was familiar with the, you know, with the sad characters. But also I think what ended up happening in my my personal life during the show, I think the show was a real savior because it helped me put my focus somewhere that was ultimately very healing for me. And the message of the show, I think, was a very healing message. So then what happened, Daisy, during it? Yeah, so so, uh, I, I won the Tony in June of 91, and then my mom was diagnosed with uh, pretty late stage colon cancer in September of that year. Oh really didn't gosh. take me until so my, sorry. thank you, until my late twenties to realize how fast, how how short that period of time was. Because you know when you're a kid, yeah. everything feels longer. Watercolored. Yeah, and so I so I realized like Jesus, that all happened in a three or four month span, and I left the show the following f- April. Um, because, you know, she was in the hospital so much and I was basically going from school to the hospital to, to work and I was, I couldn't do it anymore. I was exhausted, you know, and and she ended up dying uh, about a year after I left the show. But, you know, I do think that that show with its messages of, of regrowth and, love and that the people that we love stay with us and also about sort of letting them, you know, letting them go, I think ultimately was incredibly therapeutic for me. And I don't know what would have become of me, honestly, if I hadn't had that outlet. So it was, it was tremendously difficult. I, like I said, I I don't think I'd put my kid in, in the business, but Monty's little friend at school recently asked me was it worth it yeah the deepest coolest little kid i've ever met but i said you know it was hard and i wouldn't put a kid through it but for me i wouldn't be where i am now i wouldn't have my son i wouldn't have my partner and so yes it was worth it (laughs) life is a twisty path you know you never know it's a maze this garden (laughs) <laughs> it is. And now my son is is coming home and having listened to Wick in the car and he walked in the door the other day and went, Hey yo, hello there, Mary. And I was like, Oh no, are we here? <laughs> we know Daisy, oh, that's fantastic. Daisy, I've been doing this show Cassette Roulette uh with yeah. Amber Martin and it's a show where to plug it, I guess. We're doing a, a five show residency at Joe's pub at the end of January and every weekend in February. Amber Martin, a great singer, and I work together a lot, and we spin a giant cassette, and we uh, it, it tells us what our song is. So it's okay. all of our every you know our hundred years of career combined, uh-huh. and I have various things that I've done, and whenever we hit Secret Garden, we do Wick, and Amber puts on a terrible wig. With a dreadful accent, <laughs> wanders all through the, you know, Britain. And, <laughs> and it's like, it's our job to help wake up that garden. And it came right back. <laughs> the accent came right back to me. And at first I'm like, oh, this isn't going to last long. But for, it's some people's favorite bit. So, you know, if you're in New York at that time, well, we're going to come to L.A. eventually. 
we'll do a surprise and, and then and we'll do it. John, talk to me about what was going on in your life when you came into the Secret Garden. Oh, well, I was uh, I was just acting up a storm. I had just moved back to New York and to do Six Degrees of Separation uh, at Lincoln Center. And uh, I guess during that maybe is when I did the reading. I can't remember exactly, but we opened in 91, right? Yeah, because I remember going to see it, which I'm sure I did because I knew you. So I'm and I was in. I don't, you know, I don't think at nine I would have. Did you get it at your age? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I think so. I don't think I got six degrees of separation when I was in my twenties. I don't. Really <laughs> it was a pretty special thing to come back to, and then I just, you know, my mom, mom's British, and so I really, Secret Garden was very much. I mean, my my mom's favorite thing that I did, I think, you know, Hedvig wasn't quite her thing. You know, even when I did Hedvig and it was winning awards, my dad was like, this is all very groundbreaking, but do you think you'll ever get back to something like the secret garden? Um, <laughs> and I loved doing the workshop. In some ways, I have to say, I think it was better because... The workshop was better than what it became? Yes, in terms of the writing. I don't know, Daisy, you probably can't remember, but... We had some different cast members and in the workshop, Patty Cohenauer, an unsung legend of, of the theater. When I arrived, she was... Yeah, Edwin Drood. Yeah, my first play on Broadway was uh, Big River, first musical and play. And she was in that and she, what a voice. And then Edwin Drood and oh, just a... Her voice was like, a, it was like a crystal waterfall yeah oh, and so every time she sang you would just burst into tears i mean rebecca was fantastic too but there was something about patty it was more on the edge you know she was more like about to fall apart or something everything was just a little bit more integrated in terms of not being overblown or something and when you go to broadway you tend to have to amplify and, and hyperbolate and we also had stars coming in you know brilliant stars like mandy patinkin but they beefed him up, you know, because he was the star. So they gave him an extra song, mm. right? And it's sometimes on overbalanced it. From it was just for me. I loved, and you know, you mm -hmm. felt the need to have a larger set and more chorus members and everything. But I actually, to be honest, felt that the workshop was its apogee. You know, it was as best. Even Wick, there was a different mm. version of Wick. Remember? I don't know if you ever heard the. No, but I do remember I had the most ridiculous song of all time called What is a Home? Do you remember that one? Why was it ridiculous? Oh, because it, it the lyrics were insane. It was, uh, what is a home? Does it have a father hat upon his head? What is a home? Right. Oh Does it gosh. have a mother waiting by your bed? Do you build a fire to sit beside when supper's done? And then I can't you find you a remember story all of this. in a book and listen while it's read. That's good, actually. I like that. I had a demo of Lucy. I have a demo of Lucy Simon singing it, and it's oh drilled into my brain. Oh, How crazy. Oh, yeah. so it's very Oliver. Yeah, just... You know, does it have a father hat upon his head? Was like, well, we can do better than that. <laughs> we can do better. I, I love the workshop. And I, you know, but from the beginning, it was a, a woman-led production in terms of uh, writers, director, producers, designers. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if it was planned that way, but it ended up that way. And that was the first time I'd experienced that. And it actually made it, I think, 
extremely comfortable for all of us. And I loved working on it. And I loved working with Daisy and Allison Fraser and, and chorus members. I was not a star yet. So I was in the chorus room with the great uh, Peter Marinos and other people who just cracked me up. Peter Marinos, who did my first makeup for Hedvig, which was uh, wow. oh, how I didn't know that. only a couple of years after I, that I did my first gig, uh, 94. He also used to call people the angry inch that were kind of like Napoleon type. And I remember, <laughs> you know, the theaters were pretty rough back then. And they still are often, but they, you know, it's like pipes leaking and you'd have to go upstairs to turn the lights on for your level. And Peter Marino's oh like, careful, don't turn that off. My kidney dialysis machine. You know, there was a lot of screaming. <laughs> you know, and Drew uh, and... uh Jackal. It was just nonstop shtick. And I wasn't as much a Broadway person, even though I'd been on a couple shows by then. I was, uh, mm. I was starting to think about writing a musical. Mm. And I wanted something that really, doing this show in effect for a year and a half, including the workshop, it taught me a lot, right? I mean, Daisy, when you have to do it over and over, you you are aware of your process much more. And you, you know, as an acting teacher once told me, there's nights you're going to be brilliant. And for the other nights, that's acting class. That's why you need acting class mm -hmm. to be able to, Oof. you know, Bring get it. close to what it should be. And I had never studied voice. Um, I, I, I really didn't until I, I think got to doing the first production of Hedvig. Or, so I didn't really know what I was doing with my voice. But I really enjoyed it. It was just a long run. You know, it was a very long run. And it's funny, you know, the women in the production were great, but I, I wasn't really a big fan of the producers. And they, it was the Dodgers. And they had produced, and they were well-named. They would often dodge you. something. <laughs> Do you remember, Daisy, there was a weird thing. And for a young actor, you're affected by it. But they cut my song, Winters on the Wing. But only through the period that the Tony voters come. <gasps> what? And I didn't really have the wherewithal. I didn't know what to do. Uh, you know, like this probably would have been a, some kind of an equity thing now, but they wanted the show to be shorter, to be more favorable to the Tonys, but they didn't cut it for real. Like they didn't cut it in previews or anything. They cut it. And this is after opening. Cause like, that's a huge Could you imagine that show? Could you imagine that show without Winters on the Wing? Absolutely not. But How else are we going to conjure spring up in this thing? But do you remember I didn't I don't remember sing that. it for a while, like about a month? No, I no. Yeah. And then when the Tony period was over, they reinstated it. That's shady. Oh, that sucks. That is shady we boots. Really I'm sorry. Got an explanation and no one. I, I yeah. Even I demand answers. Even the director didn't really Good luck. explain it to me. <laughs> but it was it was shaky, you know. But in any case, it still was a very warm, a wonderful experience. We also did the um, the Thanksgiving parade, John and That's I right. sang. I mean, we were lip syncing, but we did of it, course. you know, we performed live. And we were both just sort of trying not to laugh at sort of the hokiness of it. And you can see if you if you find it and watch it, you can see we're both sort of like, this is goofy. <laughs> yeah. Were you in like Herald Square or were you on a float? 
we were in Herald Square, right? Yeah, there's nothing yeah. quite so jarring as seeing, you know, period costumes on that yeah. garish red and green <laughs> Herald yeah, Square the, set. in the 30 degree weather. Yeah. Right, to say the least. Yeah. That's crazy. Hey, listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is because it's May and we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together and Factors Fresh Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50. That's musical theater with an ER. And use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, let's talk about some of these amazing women who were behind The Secret Garden because it is such an anomaly in musical theater history. I mean, to this day, we don't see this happening, uh, let alone in the early 90s. So uh, let's begin by talking about... Lucy Simon, who unfortunately we lost recently. Brief feelings about Lucy as a person before we talk about her career. She was the nicest of them all. She really was. She was so Mm. kind. You know, she comes from musical royalty family. You know, all three of her sisters, one was a famous opera singer, one was a famous pop star. And she was the least famous, but probably the most head on her shoulders, adorable kind person. But Lucy was a dream, you know, and she just, how, how was she for you, Daisy? Was she just awful to you? Incredibly warm. She was like, I mean, now, you know, as, as she got older, she was like everyone's Nana, you know, she just was like, she just exuded love and grace and warmth and I have a lot of regrets about not taking advantage of of having her in my life just just on a personal level you know I became a teenager and I was more interested in smoking cigarettes and being angry Um, and so I I do I have a lot of sadness about about sort of losing touch over the years um but she's just like one of those points of light, you know, when you look back, like a, a gr- like a grounded etherealness. I don't know if that makes mm. sense, but that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for that. I, I'm so impressed by her. There's this famous story that is kind of written everywhere, but I'll share it here where she was a, a young girl born in 1940, by the way. 
And young girl in elementary school, she had to memorize a poem. And in order to memorize the poem, the only way she could do it was to make up a song to it. (laughs) So she wrote a song to this poem to help her remember it. And that song was literally... Oh, wink and blink and a nod? Wink and blink and a nod, yes. And years later, she records it with, you know her pop star sister, Carly Simon, and it becomes like an actual hit. And I I find that so interesting because so much of the Secret Garden score has that sensibility to it. It's almost like a nursery. Childlike, but not childish. It's it's tied to nursery rhyme. It's tied to literature. And and so I just think that this source material was a, a perfect match for her gifts and uh, composing sensibilities. I agree. <clears throat> I think it was it was it was the perfect the perfect match. Her her music is so lush and and full. And know. also now that I think about it a, a lot of variety because a lot of the show sounds like a chamber musical with you know a chorus facing out front addressing the audience and then you've also got folk pop with Dickens yeah. material and it's, I think, one of the first scores that shows like Little Women, shows like Jane Eyre have since not copied, but definitely drawn upon that really broke through to a, a wide audience and has, I think, aged really beautifully, too. People love it, even maybe more so than they did when it first came out. Yeah, it's funny that chamber chorus aspect of it I think is one of its Achilles heels but the but score wise I think it's you know unmatched mm-hmm. why is it Achilles heel to be uh well I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to disparage anything no. but uh I think I think it's story wise a, a very difficult thing to figure out who all those voices should be assigned to and you know in our production they were ghosts in a subsequent production, they were house staff. Mm, um, and in my opinion, having seen the show 70 bazillion times <laughs> in many different iterations, uh, the ghosts don't really make that much sense. Her parents certainly do, and Lily obviously does. Uh, but it doesn't make sense that Mary would lug her parents' friends with her over to England from India. But she had to in order for those voices to exist and i i i personally as a storyteller feel like if they can figure out that puzzle piece it would it would uh go a long way just seeing seeing the show as an adult now i watch it and i go i don't know why those people are with right Hmm. i remember seeing the first national tour came through utah and i went as i was probably 12 and my grandparents took me And there are like stage pictures in that storytelling, specifically with the ghosts and the cholera and the red scarves that Mm -hmm. are really indelibly printed in my mind. And it was incredibly clear to me. And and then I grew up and read reviews where people were like, nobody understood what was happening in the show. It was unclear. I'm like, I was 12. I totally got it. I don't understand this. But that's just me. It's it is. It's I think especially the India stuff is very clear. You'd have to be pretty dolt-headed to not get it. But a lot of critics are yeah. very dolt-headed and well, there you, you know go. filled with mashed potatoes. But um <laughs> but I think logically as it moves to to England, you know, in my humble opinion as a storyteller, yeah. it No, I get it. It lacks a bit of logic. 
And honestly, it, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, not to disagree with you, John, but one of the reasons why I enjoy the design of the original production is because some of that chamber stuff can be so stark that I really love the texture that comes from the design elements to balance it out so it doesn't just feel like, you know, Wuthering Heights or, or something more bleak because yeah. it very easily could go that route. And I and I mean, there's a place for that for sure, but I don't know if I prefer it. There was actually a production that they did, I think, in Denver maybe four or five years ago while we were in D.C. doing that revival. Um that I saw production stills from that was gorgeous. Yeah, it was really? like, it, it was very stark. It was very, um, I mean, it was the winter, you know, but it was very mm. dead and bleak and um, spooky and gorgeous. Yeah. I didn't see, I didn't see the later, you know, the, the act two stuff, but I thought it was, I thought it was a really interesting approach. That's cool. <clears throat> so let's talk about Marsha Norman, who was a famous, famous playwright at this point. Uh, having won a gajillion awards for Night Mother, a, a show that is, you know, just about as lighthearted as you could want, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, obviously about suicide. Recollections on working with Miss Norman? She was great. I mean, we, you know, we were just the, you know, we were just the canaries. So we didn't always, we weren't always asked our opinion, but, you know, like everyone was super nice for sure. us. I know when Manny came in, it was kind of a different vibe because he he's a very soft-hearted guy, but he had also a kind of an aggressive outer thing, you know, which has mellowed a lot over the years. But he had a bit of a reputation as a kind of, uh, let's say, leader when he wasn't necessarily the leader, you know. But I really mm. loved him. You know, I loved him. And he was very sweet to me. And that leadership at times wasn't always necessary. I remember being forced into a Seder during tech. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) I remember that. But it was, I mean, it was cool. But it was just funny. It was like, we had to do it. With their sons, who who Gabriel's now like running their amazing social media. Yeah, Gabriel's a great performer too. But the one time that his leadership and his, his sense of justice really prevailed was, I remember John Babcock, who played little, uh, Played a little Colin, who is the boy who uh, is disabled and, you know, is, is cured in a way by the, the garden. Wonderful boy. You know, and when he was qu- quite young, you know, he was very androgynous. And I remember we had one show with a lot of inner city kids getting free tickets. And they were laughing. Oh, they were mercilessly mm-hmm. kind of, you know, making fun of his, probably his androgynousness. And it was near the end of the show where he actually kind of gets out of the wheelchair and, and this group of kids, you know, they were probably in elementary school. I don't know, like they're probably 10 to 12 or something. The music is flowing and it's the big climax where everyone is happier and it's coming along. And, and there was laughter. And Mandy said to the orchestra, stop, to the conductor. We were just all, the entire cast was on stage. We were stunned. And he t- looked up at the balcony where those mean kids were, and he said, "Shame, shame, Shanda." And we were all like, and we had started applauding, and the kids were, you know, the mean kids were silenced. And then he looked at the orchestra, nodded, and the show continued, which was only five minutes left. 
Um, do you remember that, David? Come to yeah, me. I actually wasn't on that day. What? It was a it was a, a matinee, and the only reason that I witnessed it was because I was there for the bake sale we were having out front. <laughs> uh, this was before the big, huge Broadway flea market oh, when. Yeah. It would just be little stands outside of each theater, and we would sell, like, literally home-baked goods and little crafts. And I I happened to walk in backstage at that moment, and I was, oh you know. Yeah, it was it was something else. Janine Tesori was uh, conducting that day. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Janine was our assistant conductor. Yep. Michael Cosrin was our, our conductor. He was great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great team, wasn't it? It really was. Well, turning this piece of children's literature into a musical is not going to be an easy task. And so, like, thank goodness that you had an amazing team to do it. The original Secret Garden, written by Francis Hodgen Burnett. Daisy, you said you were a big fan growing up of said children's novel. You look up Secret Garden, it's always like British literature. But I didn't realize how much time she spent in the United States. Like, she moved to the U.S., after her father died at the age of three, they had they had a couple of years and had this oh, had really no hard time. Uh, so she moved to Tennessee, I believe, at that point. Started writing in kind of a speaking of Little Women in a Joe March sort of way to help pay the bills. And eventually, when she moved to France, lived there for a few years, she went through a lot of husbands. God bless her. And um, and wrote several in- incredible children's novels, including Little Lord Fa- uh, Falderoy, uh, Little Princess, and The Secret Garden, which was her last one. It makes me wonder, because there's that beautiful statue in Central Park of Marion mm-hmm. Dickin. Uh, it makes me wonder if that's why is because, you know, she ultimately came back to New York and that's where she passed away, I think, in the early 1900s. So despite being incredibly British, there there's a lot of uh, connection to our country as well with this amazing writer. Who knew, right? I didn't, I actually, I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. We, I used that statue uh, in an animated sequence at the beginning of my film, Short Bus, is a very different no way really yeah because we have this john bayer did the animation uh a kind of look it sort of looks like a model of the city we zoom around the city and we at one point the camera kind of crashes through central park and we we pass dickin and mary on our oh, way to uh sex on our way to a sex therapy was short bus when was short bus after secret garden like how much time Oh, oh, like ninety eight. Yeah, it was like was 49? that late nineties? No, it was like two thousand. It came out two thousand six. Oh, geez. did it really? I I just remember Johnny when he was developing it. He asked me if I wanted to audition for his new movie, and I was like, "Oh, what is it?" And he said, "Well, the p- part I'm thinking about you for is a therapist. She's a sex therapist." I said, "Okay," and he said, "You would have to show." your parts and I was like you know I love you so much <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna have to say no to this one. <laughs> it was child stars who were the ones who were thinking about going there because as you know Daisy and it's different being a theater person you know you, you get the idea of community you get the idea of consistency in fact you have to be consistent mm-hmm. um every night um but that consistency is good for a kid right you know oh, where yeah. you belong and good for an adult, too. 
I, I think that that's one of the reasons why theater saved my life for sure. It's like you have the best of both worlds. You have a community, you have a family, you have somebody, people that you're, you're, you have to connect to emotionally because you're yeah. shoved in these small dressing rooms backstage telling emotional stories and mm-hmm. at times dancing really close to them. You know, I, like mm-hmm. the, the intimacy is going to happen. But then on top of it, it becomes this discipline that I think the pandemic has robbed a lot of our youth of. Um, I I work with a lot of a lot of kids and I see their fragility and the opportunities they lack to flex their discipline and and commit to something. And that is a who that is a deadly combination of two things that we're really going to have to work through over the next. (laughs) Right. It's also interesting to see pictures from rehearsal rooms these days and everyone's on their phone you know everyone's on their phone every break even the little even the kids and I find it so it's just so disconnected it's so I mean I don't want to sound like one of those you know I kids in their phones in my day that, we did yeah, puzzles but that backstage is what it, <laughs> exactly we did <laughs> You know, and you talked and you got to know each other and you and you learned things about yourself and about other people. And not only that, but like you watched other people's processes. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have. I learned so much. It's so fun listening to you talk about just growing up and life lessons. And it's one of the reasons why I think <laughs> here I go with my my sequitur. It's one of the reasons why I think children's literature is so potent, so ripe with profound messages, some of the most perfect storytelling we have, because my perception of it and what I get from it changes as I get older. What I got from The Secret Garden when I saw it when I was 12 is much different than what I understand it in my 40s. I don't know. What do you you all feel about it? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I have the unique perspective, you know, that I got to play Mary and Martha. No, I um, which for me was incre- which which was incredibly restorative and um, healing in a lot of ways. I get to I got to sort of come full circle and sort of sing, hold on to myself. Yeah, wow. That opportunity to go back and sort of nurture that child was uh, invaluable. So yeah, I, I, I and I have definitely you know grown and seen it from a different perspective. Certainly, I went to see Finding Neverland, and I think that was the first sort of experience I had as a parent watching mm. a story about mostly about children, but seeing it from the parents' perspective, and I I broke me. I we- I wept so hard it it was ugly. Um. <laughs> We love so the full five tissue ugly cry. Oh, so it was it it has been interesting, you know, to to see my perspective change over the years. Yeah. So when the show starts, we meet Miss Mary Lennox. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe her like as a person? Not necessarily what has happened to her, but and maybe you can't really take the two apart. Mary is uh the only child on this, uh, you know, military base in colonial India that that we know of. Um, she really has grown up alone, the daughter of a, a beauty who everyone loves. Um, her mother 
Rose. I think that, yeah, I, th- I think that Frances Hodgson Burnett sort of hints at uh, her mother's sort of philandering, but doesn't, mm. obviously, it's a ch- children's it's book. It's a children's book, but, right. But I, but I think that's implied, you know, her mother always had men around and... She had attention, her, to say the least. She had attention, and, and Mary was in awe of her mother and, you know, in some ways jealous and, and just desperately wanted her attention and couldn't get it. You know, she was a dour, sour little child. And yet the picture on her nightstand in this little frame isn't of her mom. It's of her Aunt Lily. Why do you think That's that right. is? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a plot device, but like if we intellectualize it, I think right. there's something interesting there. If I were to say there. like, right, you know, I think it's probably the fantasy of another life. She's probably able to imbue this woman with more sort of love and tenderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In her in her fantasies, like this is the mother that, you know, would give her snuggles and kisses and, you know, stay with her until she fell asleep and and play with her during the day yeah um so i I think that's probably what that's about i I Um, totally i totally think you're right because even the relationship between rose and lily what we're able to see of it through these you know ghost flashbacks and and things is that rose is ambitious interested in the outer facade status yeah and lily is a nurturer she's one who wants to get things to grow whether it's the man she falls in love with or the garden that she wants to tend i think also that yeah i think maybe that's why mary you know un unconsciously obviously connects with lilies because i think ultimately that is what mary is as well you know she ends up being the nurturer and and the one that that brings things back to life there's somewhere she's she's connecting with lily on a soul level yeah i love that there's so much unconscious life to this character because then like you said on the outside everyone calls her sour and dour and Mm -hmm. And uh, what is it that Medlock says? I love the line so much. <clears throat> I've never seen a child sit so still and look so or old. say so little or, or look so old. That's it. That's yeah. it. And obviously that comes from trauma. And yeah. she, you know, she's the only survivor of this super spreader event, which <laughs> has yeah. like all the kinds of new relevancy. When yeah. When you think about these people in India who were – actively judging people with cholera as being dirty and right. um and then they themselves throw this party in which they give each other cholera and all die in the matter of one evening like it's yeah. it's it humbling is, it's humbling yeah it, it's absolutely humbling and it's also like the timeless tale of colonialism isn't it mm, you know that so we true, so true that we come into a space and we I mean, you know, I don't think the English necessarily brought cholera, but we, but we certainly, as colonizers, had a history of of bringing our disease and then not caring for those who got ill from it. Yeah, not being accountable for the consequences we bring about. Right. Yeah. So Mary Lennox has been orphaned uh, because of this cholera outbreak in India. And so she is sent to England to live with her uncle Archibald, who, of course, married 
her aunt Lily. Lily, like we said, was uh, just someone that everybody loved. She uh, loved gardening. She loved Archibald. He loved her in a way that I think was very confronting to him because he has a hunch and a a bit of a gimpy leg. So he's, he's handicapped and probably didn't think that someone as beautiful as she would, would fall in love with him. But alas, there it was. She was pregnant and in her garden sitting on a branch of a tree and the tree branch broke which wow that's it's really interesting when you think of the the symbolism of the garden giving both life and death to this family and lily falls it immediately puts her into labor and she dies in childbirth this destroys archibald archie it also proves to be rather difficult for the son, Colin. Everyone treats him like a, a, a precious object that cannot leave a bed. He is bedridden. But this house that Mary is coming to, and we are told this incessantly by the ghosts who inhabit it, is haunted. There's a, there's a house on the hill. Spirits haunt the halls. And so this question of what is a ghost and why are they here really floats, if you will, throughout the entire show. Are they here because they're actually haunting? Are they here because the people who knew them won't let them go? It seems to be a little bit more of the latter. But when Mary arrives, she immediately picks up on it and also hears someone crying, which of course is Colin, but because no one talks about him, she doesn't know where he is. She just hears this kind of moaning throughout the, the hallways. And, and who knows, maybe it's even a figurative crying. She also is really, uh, she's a bit of a brat. Like she, she has her, she can have her full on hissy fit tantrums, some of which are done in Indian. Or, you know, like uh, she's mm-hmm. very expressive in that way, too. Do you think that comes from the only child syndrome or just growing up and testing boundaries? No, Looking I, back think it on com- it, of I think, yeah, I think it comes, I, you know, I, I think actually Mary is not a brat. I think that, that, and I think that's actually a pitfall of the character. And I think mm. it's what I think a lot of little girls have trouble with when they're auditioning for that part. You know, they go in with that mindset of like, Mary is a brat, right? And she's mm. not, she's, tra- she's a traumatized child who who lacks love and nurturing and and kindness. I was watching um uh I can't remember their name, uh this social media influencer and they were talking about when someone calls you an old soul, it's it's actually not a compliment and it, mm-hmm. and and that really comes from trauma and it comes from learning to like you know, swallow your feelings and and not burden anybody else with them. And I think that's what Mary is. And I think and I think also her mother was was probably also somebody who just threw tantrums when she when she didn't like mm-hmm. things or didn't get get her way, you know. One hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's the model that she had. And but also, you know, when my kid throws a tantrum it comes out of left field right because he's generally incredibly loved and nurtured and listened to and we're like 
Where does this coming from? Yeah, you don't need to be doing this because we're here and we're listening to you. But but for somebody like Mary, it's the only way that she can get herself heard. Seen, you know, and yeah. yeah, and that tantrum that she has, you know, when she's told she has to go away to school, I mean, it works. You uh-huh. know, she doesn't yeah, yeah she does I mean, she she ends up getting threatened to get sent away and 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 is saved at the last minute, but it's it's the only thing she knows how to do because nobody's told her any different. So if you don't mind me asking, because one of the people that we didn't talk about on the team, Susan Shulman, who was yeah. a great director, yeah. um, is a great director. And we actually didn't talk that much about Marsha either. I no, realized. we really did. <laughs> sort of That's actually a fair point. That. But uh, but we did say like, Marsha had a, a a hard job. Uh, taking this really complex um, story, uh, novel at that, and turning it into a musical. She also wrote the lyrics to Lucy Simon's music. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, what she was able to craft was this complex character with a lot of interesting things to say, act, do, sing. Mm-hmm. How are how are you able to toe that line of not being too bratty? What did Susan have a lot to do with that? Director Susan Shulman. Uh, yeah, Susan was a very hands-on director. Um, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of notes. <laughs> we would get a pile of of index cards with notes um, that I kept for years and years. I probably still have some of them. Wow. She knew what she wanted. She mm-hmm. was very clear and knew what she wanted. And you know, and and I think I mean I think again my familiarity with the story was part of what helped me. I think also just. Um, I was also an old soul, so I think I uh, I just related to that character in such a strong way. It never occurred to me, you know, to go in there and stamp my foot and put my, you know, hands on mm. my hips or whatever the that that cliche is with with bratty little girls. Um, and I think that Susan was very careful, right, to make a character that was to help craft a character that was likable. One of the big things, one of the big turning points for me, because I read the script before I talked to you, just to kind of take myself through it. And one of the big turning points for me with aligning myself with Mary is when she stands up to Colin, because you see these children who, to quote you, are both old souls. They both mm-hmm. have a lot of baggage and trauma. trauma. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Mary, maybe subconsciously seeing herself in him, is able to put him in his place in a way mm-hmm. that nobody else in her in his life can. Yeah. And yeah. I really feel like that is the moment where I'm like, oh, she's our girl. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. She 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 has done something that no one else has been able to do, mostly just because that's how she's been treated. And I think I think they really save each other, you know, Mary and Colin both save each other because obviously he gets out of his wheelchair and, you know, and the garden is healed, but, but Mary is, is, is healed by all of that as well. And yeah, I think you're right. That's the moment where you're like, oh, okay, we're, we're on your side. We get it. Um, I also, I also oh, would say too, uh, about Susan, generally speaking, I personally think that having a woman direct this story is is the appropriate uh, choice. I think that it is ultimately the story of a little girl and of motherhood, you know, mother nature and, and nurturing. And I think that 
that's only something that can come from a woman. Yeah. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think it's one of the big reasons why this musical feels so of its own. Yeah. If that and makes John sense. said, you know, the rehearsal room was very, really comfortable. And I, I think that's because it was led by women. Mm. There was never any screaming. There was never any, all the stuff you hear about from male directors that, that most of us have encountered, none of that took place. Wow. That's great. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, listeners, have you tried Factor yet? Remember Factor Meals? They were supposed to send me a box to try out, but they don't ship to Hawaii, so now I'm stuck with my Taco Bell. And now it's up to you. It's up to you to try it and let me know how it is, because it's May. And we can't eat like it's the holidays anymore. We're trying to get our summer bodies together. And Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, You'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting food. You can choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, whatever you want, it's here. Head to factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50, that's musical theater with an E-R, and use code musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code musicaltheater50 at factormeals.com slash musicaltheater50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. If I had a fine white horse. Not everybody in the house is mean or haunted or upset. We have the chambermaid Martha, who is sprightly and spunky and is immediately trying to get... Mary to go outside and get fresh air and play. Mary being from India where it was very humid and and crowded does not understand this concept of open air and uh, and cold. But Martha, because of a fun song called If I Had a Fine White Horse, uses a little reverse psychology to get her to go outside. And Martha also talks about her brother Dickon. Talk to me about Dickon. Who is this character? He's magical. He's probably a Virgo. He's definitely done ayahuasca. <laughs> he's a, That's hilarious. He grows magic mushrooms. He's a witch yeah. boy. You know, witches are like liminal. They they bring bring different worlds together. You know, the beyonds and, and the. But I think of him as a kind of priest, a, a you know a, a therapist, but in using different forms. Uh, using music and gardening therapy and, and, you know, reminding Mary that she's part of something larger and it's not necessarily God, but it's, it's, it's a mother, you know, it's a mother nature. It's, it's the world in which we live and don't always take care of, you know, and you can even look at the story as a kind of, you know, early inadvertent metaphor for climate change. You know, the garden has been left to die. Mm. And the literal death in Mary's life is is um, 
in this dead garden. And she, he says, it's not that it's actually dead, but it's just dormant. And you have to mm-hmm. clear away the dead parts. You have to loosen up the earth. You have to make these things grow again that are waiting to grow. You can put in your own seeds, but there are some that are there already. And it's preparing and stewardship of your environment, of your life, of your world. And yeah, that's what I love. I love that Dickens a collaborator with nature. And it, it yeah. shows that like, this doesn't happen without the two working together. We can't live on this planet without thinking that what we do affects how our environment changes around us. And so here's this boy who we don't see. We hear about him way before we ever see him. Everybody talks about Dickens, but we never see him. And because he's always out doing things. He's always out collaborating with nature to make it happen, to help it happen. Yeah, he might not even be human. I mean, who knows? No one really says where he lives. Who knows? His family was, but he is certainly in this world, and he he has work to do. When we experience loss, as we all do or will, these are the kind of messages that we need, you know. And it was very moving for me. I lost a brother when I was young, and my boyfriend after, you know, after this doing Secret Garden. But it, the metaphor continues to be very powerful. Last thing for you, John Cameron, talk to me about this accent. This is where I did some research. I have ancestors from this area, but gosh dang it, I can't understand a thing they say. Can you understand what I'm saying? Uh, every other word, but I get the idea. I remember back then they were like, you got to pull back on the accent. I'm like, I will not. There's not. It will not, be, it will not be correct if I do that. I learn accents pretty quickly. Um, and it was important. Oh, cool. I think I had a couple of reviews where people were like, you know, I couldn't quite get what he was saying. And <laughs> the most vitriolic critic was John Simon of New York Magazine. Always. Famously horrible to people. But he said, shut up about his accent. It's perfect. Oh. Wow. I don't think it was perfect, but. I've heard of people having T-shirts that say, you know, like I was verbally abused by John Simon. And, like, you need a T-shirt that says the opposite. Like, that's really impressive. Verbally inspired by his accent. Yeah. Yeah. I love, the, I love northern accents uh, in England. So do I. It's my favorite. It's Scottish. Now, once Mary meets Dickens, she really begins to catch the spirit of how rewarding and fun it can be to help things to grow. And as she's exploring the grounds, which is this huge property, she sees a garden, a secret garden, if you will, that has no door. And she quickly learns that that was Lily's garden that has since been abandoned and that no one is allowed in it. It then becomes Mary's quest to find out how to get there. She ultimately gets into the garden by means of magic. First is a bird who Dickon can talk to. The bird shows her where a key is. And then after a, a very stormy night in which uh, there's a lot of drama in the house, it's the ghost and specifically her Aunt Lily who leads her to the door of the garden. And she finally is able to get in only to then see how truly dead everything looks. I think the second act of The Secret Garden is really about seeing how this renewal, this rebirth, 
both in love in the household and family relationships, and as well as the garden itself, comes to pass. Um, what are some of your favorite moments in the score? Because when I look at I Heard Someone Crying, which is a really challenging trio, where the, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you're just this 10 year, 11 year old <laughs> singing with freaking Rebecca Luker and Mandy Patinkin and holding your own, and then also um, The Girl I Mean to Be, which is just a, such a beautiful melody and gorgeous little lyric and a, a song that an adult would kill to have. <laughs> and yet, it, you know, and yet it's given to yeah. to a, a child. I, I anyway, you know, my I, I would say the ones that really stick out to me are uh, "Hold On," oh. um, "Winters on the Wing," and "How Could I Know." Mm. You know, um, Marsha and Lucy told a story in an interview once about when "How Could I Know." when Lucy f- finished it or or came up i guess with the with with the melody and Marsha was driving and she had a you know one of those old suitcase phones in her car and Lucy called her and said i think i i think i've come up with the melody and started playing it for her and and Marsha said she had to pull pull over you know and mm. stop and it was just you know it was like a train wow. And I still believe that. I still believe that that duet is one of the most gorgeous, haunting pieces of music ever. Um, mm-hmm. I think Winters on the Wing is so like sexy and and mysterious, mysterious. and yeah, yes. and spooky, and you know, mm-hmm. Hold On obviously is like is a timeless anthem. You know, I when I did the revival and I and I had the good fortune to play Martha. Trump got elected on gosh wow that uh that that's making me cry um and I and we were in DC and I sang that song every night and I felt like I was saying you know we're gonna get through this that he is the monster and we're gonna get through it and I guess I'm upset I'm crying because I feel like we've just it's worse now (laughs) i mean not i don't mean you know the presidency i just mean like back then we were so naive you know we were like oh this is the dumbest thing anyone's ever said and it's like the next day like oh no this is the dumbest thing anyone's oh no this is the dumbest thing this is the scariest thing that's ever happened no this is the scariest thing that's ever happened and to watch you know the rights of lgbtq people getting stripped away um as a direct result of that is uh, heartbreaking. And I really feel like Hold On is one of those songs. It's just, I keep coming back to as the thing that helps me to keep That's so going. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I completely agree. What I was filled with by relooking at this show, and maybe it's where I am right now, but like this idea that life wants to live. Yeah. And I feel like I'm constantly being given this message that like everything's crappy (laughs) (laughs) and that like nobody can get along and everything is working against me. And it's really, really helpful to go back to nature 
And I think being in Hawaii is has done that for me as well because the ocean is so majestic and you're like you're constantly like, you are all powerful. I am yeah, nothing, you I know. I love the ocean. But it's it's this feeling that like the charm from the ground wants to come up mm-hmm. no matter how deep the winter is. Yeah. And so, yeah, the show should have an anthem like Hold On. And yes, the garden has to bloom into something beautiful, both literally and metaphorically. Right. And death and birth and renewal are all mixed into it in this really beautiful way that that just fills me with so much hope. And and like those are the best American musicals, in my opinion, are the ones yeah. that that really fill us with hope. You know, I agree. I agree. Um, I was reading. I guess it was in my permaculture gardening book. <laughs> hey, <laughs> I was dark. reading that they have learned that the earth actually releases chemicals that stimulate happiness. So when you are gardening, it actually increases your levels of happiness. And, wow. and that's why so many people turn to it as like a meditative calming practice that, and you know and the earth in a very very real way uh is healing one of the characters that we haven't mentioned is uh neville who is archie's brother he is a doctor once again Marsha norman creating a lot of nuance with these characters he very easily could just be this evil doctor uh who is keeping colin down because he's jealous that Archibald, his brother, was able to marry Lily, the woman that he loved. But when you look at it, when you look at the script, Neville had a practice that he then gave up in order to help Colin, to help Archie in his mourning. He really gave up a lot of his life to help this family. And, of course, because of it, boy, oh, boy, did the resentments build up. I think it began with good intentions and then in the same way that a lot of the love has left the house, uh, it, it has left his heart as well. What happens plot-wise is that Archie gets overwhelmed by the promise of all of, all of this life and love that might be coming back to his home, especially since he's still haunted, if you will. It's so interesting, this idea of being haunted by your love. It's like, which do we want? Do we want them to stay or do we want them to go? But because Archie is really struggling in that transition in his life, he leaves. He leaves the house and says, Neville, brother, you're in charge. Neville decides that he needs to send Mary away because Mary has, you know, uh, contacted, has made contact with Colin and is trying to get him to (laughs) live a little bit louder than Neville thinks he should for health reasons. What Mary decides to do is write a letter to her uncle Archie asking him to come back and saying, you're missed. And, and when Archie, when Archibald receives that, it's enough to make him really confront his choices and this devastating loss that he has had in his life. As the show wraps up, Mary playing in the garden with Colin and Martha and Dickon, and it has grown back just as Dickon had promised. Uh, Not only is Mary running around, but Colin is pushing her in his wheelchair for a change. 
And it is in that scene that Neville and Archibald walk. Neville is, of course, very upset. Archibald, however, couldn't be happier to see his son. And this day in this garden, no small coincidence there, is the moment that they decide to be a family. And there's accountability and there's connection and there's love and there's a chance for a new season. I think also to the to the matter of hope, what I always think of, you know, we say like, oh, we're killing the earth. That's actually not true. We're killing ourselves and the animals on the earth. But the earth's going to be fine. She, she's going to be know? just fine. She's going to be fine. She's going to take our trash and, you know, and turn it into something else. We won't be here anymore. But boy, while we are... It's, you know, what are we doing if we're not being good stewards Yeah, of the earth and of each other? Like, what else? Mm. Why else are we here? You know? Oh, <laughs> amen to that. Amen, sister. That was, that's awesome. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're still on Twitter. I don't know how much longer, but we're definitely on Instagram at a musical podcast. We're also on TikTok. We have Patreon exclamation point where for only $1 a month, you can support the regular show and receive bonus content like our recent conversation with one of the longest running male dancers in Broadway history, Ray Mercer. We also have a tea public store and the profits we receive from that we donate to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. We're going to do our big uh, submission here at the end of the month. No more than anything, listeners, that we may be going into December, but the promise of spring is always there. And I love you, and I'm grateful for you, and never forget that. John and Daisy, it's time for you to plug what you got going on. What's coming up? Uh, Cassette Roulette, my show with Amber Martin at Joe's Pub in New York. For five shows starting January 21st every weekend in February too. Um, I'm doing a, a Planned Parenthood benefit in Atlanta and Athens with this music of REM December wow. 14th and 15th in Athens and Atlanta. You can Google that. Uh, my podcast, Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Uh, it's every Thursday where, oh my God, we're almost at the end of season two, which Wow. Blows my mind. I love it so much. I'm so proud of it. Uh, I write it every single week. That's what I got to get get to now. And I have a live show, uh, Daisy and Jordan's Brunch of Shame, uh, March 5th <laughs> at Green Room 42. It is wildly inappropriate and messy and mm. dirty and a, a fun time is had by all. And that's it for the moment. But that's other amazing. things are uh, coming down the pike. Always, you always got pots of stirring on the stove. Always, you have always, to. Always, always. I love you, Daisy. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. I love you, Johnny. Run. Thanks, everybody. And remember, if a thing is wick, it'll grow.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.